while you get while you get situated, um, I want to let you know of one one other piece of information for the upcoming week, and that is that you're going to receive an email middle of the week this week that contains within it a link to a survey. We are one of a, a, a number of churches in the Kansas City area that are partnering with Barna while they conduct research about uh, engagement with scripture in the church in the Kansas City area. And so what that looks like is a 14 or 15 question survey that we're going to email out to everyone in our congregation. Uh, Barna will compile that, and they're doing this in cities um, around the United States right now. So they'll compile Kansas City-specific uh, data. They'll compile national data, but they'll also send us the data specific to our uh, actual individual church here. And so when you get that, I encourage you to take a minute, fill out the survey. It really doesn't take very long. It's, it's entirely based around your engagement or potentially lack thereof, with Scripture on a regular basis. And so here's my one caveat, and that's when you receive the link to the email. Uh, if you're someone who doesn't read the Bible very often and you think to yourself, oh, I don't read the Bible very often, I shouldn't fill out that survey, that's going to skew the data, right? So when you get the link, no matter what your engagement with Scripture might be, go ahead and fill it out. It'll give them a better picture uh, of people within the church and how often they interact with scripture. And so I encourage you to do that. It does not take very long. Uh, And then you'll have until July 30th. So the link will come out to you this week. It's open until the end of the month. You can fill it out anytime within there. But when you get the email, if you don't do it then, we all know you'll probably lose the email or forget about it and won't ever do it. So if if you have the opportunity, click the link, do the survey. We would appreciate that. Sound good? Awesome. This morning we're going to be in two different places, so if you've got a Bible and you want to flip Ezra chapter 7, Nehemiah chapter 8, I'll explain why we're in two two different books this morning uh, once we get there. But while you get situated, I want to tell you a story about a man named Captain David Marquette. David Marquette is a captain in the U.S. Navy, and he was on the verge of receiving command of the USS Olympia, which is a nuclear submarine. And because of that command, he dove into what would be kind of his normal characteristic style of, uh, of leadership, which was that he poured himself into learning everything about the USS Olympia that was possible. Every button and switch, every role that each individual was supposed to play on the submarine, he wanted to know everything about it. And then two weeks before he was going to take command of the Olympia, he found out that that was not the ship he was going to be on. He found out that instead he was going to be on the USS Santa Fe. And so what he inherited in the USS Santa Fe was a newer submarine uh, that was a little more technologically advanced than the Olympia, but it also came with one of the lowest uh, performing crews in all of the U.S. Navy. And almost every metric that the United States Navy uses to assess uh, the capability, capacity, competency of their submarine crews, the USS Santa Fe, was at the very bottom. And so once on board the ship, Captain Marquette decided that what he wanted to see was this crew in action. What were they actually capable of? Where were the shortcomings and and whatnot? And so what he did was that shortly after they got all the way out uh, at their normal cruising depth, he simulated a nuclear reactor failure 
which means that the submarine essentially loses the vast majority of its power capabilities. And so really quickly, the crew switched them over to battery power. But once they did that, he wanted to see, he wanted to kind of push the bounds of this uh, simulation as far as he possibly could. And so he gave an order that the submarine was to be run at two-thirds speed, which means that they were going to drain a little bit more battery power, but it would move the submarine forward faster off of its reserve power. Unfortunately, that means it's going to drain the battery quicker. So the crew would have to sort out a little bit faster what's the issue with the reactor and how do we get it back up and running. He's trying to create as much stress as possible for the crew. So he issues the order two-thirds ahead, and nothing happens. He gives it again two-thirds ahead, and the individual who is supposed to enact that repeats the order two-thirds ahead, and yet nothing happens. And Captain Marquette is growing increasingly frustrated. He turns to the individual that's supposed to be increasing the speed of the ship, and he says, what's going on? Is there a problem? And the individual, almost in a sheepish voice, says, well, sir, that, uh, this particular submarine doesn't have that capability. The USS Olympia did, and David Marquette knew that, but the USS Santa Fe did not. So he looks back at this individual and he says, why would you not tell me that? And the young man working in that role said, well, one of the things we're taught is to follow orders. And you gave an order, and even though we couldn't do it, I didn't want to be disrespectful or seem insubordinate. It was in that moment that Captain David Marquette realized that what this crew needed was not greater discipline to follow orders. What they needed was not uh, a better understanding of how rank and those sorts of things worked within the United States Navy. What they needed was the ability to make decisions for themselves. They needed the ability to understand their particular role fully and completely and to execute that role as best as they possibly could when given an order and the ability to tell him as the captain, sir, this ship doesn't do that. This submarine cannot do that. We call that what Captain David Marquette engaged in on this boat. We call that leadership, that he looked around, he saw what the situation was, he assessed it, and then he began moving the crew forward in order to perform better. And in teaching this crew, Captain David Marquette took the USS Santa Fe from the lowest ranked crew, one of the lowest ranked crews in the United States Navy, to the highest rated one. Not only that, but he began to alter the landscape of the Navy's submarine fleet as a whole. Usually, out of a submarine, two or three officers on that submarine will end up having command of their own ship. Of the 14 officers aboard the USS Santa Fe under Captain David Marquette, nine of them went on to command their own submarines. And in so doing, they took with them this particular style of leadership on a sub that the captain knows as much as he can about the vessel that he's on, but that he makes sure that every individual on that crew knows their role completely has total confidence in what they're capable to do, and that when the captain gives an order, they follow through with that as best they possibly can, but if there's a gap, they've got the freedom to let a superior officer know that that particular thing is not technologically possible or is not physically possible on this particular boat. And that began to have ripple effects outward into the rest of the Navy's submarine fleet. I'm going to relate this to Daniel and Ezra. 
prepare to be amazed. <laughs> I'm kidding. I am going to relate it to Daniel and Ezra. What we saw last week in the life and, and story and book of Daniel and the account of Daniel is a man who had conviction. He walks out of Babylon, or he walks out of Jerusalem into Babylon, and he has conviction that holds him. It doesn't matter where he lives, he's going to live a very particular way. He's fully invested in, committed to this society that the Lord has taken him to, but he's also fully committed to being holy in the midst of it. He's got faithful community around him. He's firm on his truth, on the truth of Scripture and on his convictions. And yet at the same time, he's not looking to pick a fight. He's respectful when he presents truth to someone else, particularly the kings and other individuals above him. Because of that, he's got favor with the people around him. And he's got this lifelong commitment to living faithfully in a faithless society. That's what we saw in Daniel. And because of that way of living, Daniel does or provides this perfect picture of what Paul talks about in the book of Philippians. Paul encourages the Philippian Christians that they're not supposed to argue. They're not supposed to quarrel with one another. They need to encourage each other and serve one another sacrificially as Christ has served them. And if they would do that, then they will shine like stars in the universe while they hold out the word of life. That's what Daniel does in Babylon. And it's this incredible picture. He's this amazing example of what personal, individual, internal faithfulness should look like in the life of a believer. But one of the beauties of Christianity is that your faith is not ever strictly a personal, individual, internal matter. Jesus says that people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. They leave it on a table and it gives life to all. And that's the way the faith of a believer is supposed to operate. What people within the church and ultimately those outside the church need is something like what Captain Marquette brought to the USS Santa Fe. They need leadership. But not just leadership. They need something more. Something that within the church we call discipleship. That's what we're going to see in the life of Ezra. Ezra, much like Daniel, has this incredible personal, individual, internal faith. But he's got these outward eyes that say, I want this personal, internal individual faith to be something that reaches out far beyond me. And so today, I hope we can be very practical about what it means to engage in the process of discipleship. We talk about discipleship a lot here at Liberty Christian Fellowship. It's actually embedded within the purpose of our church. We exist to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We exist to build disciples which means that we need to take seriously the process of discipleship. But it's not just that we, when I say we, I mean our staff. Our hope is that every individual that calls LCF their church home would take seriously the task of discipleship. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at it in the life of one individual, Ezra. Ezra, the book of Ezra, the man Ezra, lives in the period of Old Testament history known as the return. It's when The exile has come to completion, and the Israelites are able to go back home to Jerusalem. If you've got one of your blue books here, this is the second to last illustration in that blue book. I didn't, it's actually on the week of Nehemiah. I didn't look at what the page number is. In three waves, the Israelites come back to Jerusalem. It happens under three different people. And the book of Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book that contained the account of all three of these individuals. Somewhere in like the, the, 
3rd century AD, it got split into two books, and now we have Ezra and Nehemiah in our Bible. But three accounts, a man named Zerubbabel comes back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He brings some people with him. Ezra is sent back. He comes back essentially to rebuild the people. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And then finally, Nehemiah comes back, and he brings some more people with him, and they rebuild the walls. And there's this kind of cycle that takes place within Ezra and Nehemiah, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's that God stirs in the heart of a Persian king, Cyrus initially, Cyrus sends Zerubbabel back, and then Artaxerxes sends Ezra and Nehemiah back, and the king commissions a leader to go back to Jerusalem and to do a certain thing, and so that leader, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, they rally up some people with them, they go back to Jerusalem where they face some opposition, they overcome the opposition, they complete their task, and when the task is complete, all the people of Jerusalem assemble. That happens three times over the course of these two books that we're going to read in the next two weeks. And in general, you can see some things play out repeatedly. The first is that the Lord works in the heart of an unfaithful person. Cyrus, not a believer, not a Christian, not an Israelite, not a you fill in whatever word helps you make sense of that. Artaxerxes is the same. But the Lord stirs in their hearts. The text is actually very clear about that. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. That's what happens in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. You also are going to see the Lord work very intentionally to direct his will forward. Repeatedly, throughout the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see the same phrase pop up. That the good hand of the Lord was with fill in the blank, either a person or a task. The good hand of the Lord was upon fill in the blank. God's moving forward his will. And he's doing that in the hearts of people that aren't faithful and people that are faithful. It's it's an amazing uh, uh, thing that plays out over the course of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I want to read in Ezra chapter 7. We're going to look at the first 10 verses and then we're going to kind of talk about the rest of the book of Ezra before flipping to Nehemiah. Here's what Ezra 7, 1 through 10 says. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, all the way down to, at the end of verse 5, son of Aaron, chief priest. The list of names there is important because it points us all the way back to Moses' brother, Aaron the first of the Levites in Israel, the priests, those who were supposed to take care of matters concerning the temple and the law and the sacrifices. What the author of Ezra wants you to understand is that Ezra is directly from that line. That's what all the names are for. Jump to verse 6. This Ezra, so you're not confused as with another Ezra, went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given him. And the king granted him all that he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests, and the Levites, the singers, and gatekeepers, and temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem." For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. It's a five-month journey from wherever Ezra was in Babylon back to Jerusalem. 
he takes some Levites and uh, some other individuals with him, some people from captivity back to Jerusalem, and we get one descriptor about the person of Ezra. And this is the first step in the discipleship process. The one description we get is that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his rules and statutes in Israel. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it. The order of that is important. You have to know it before you can do it. You've got to be doing it. It has to have some impact on your life before your teaching of it would have any credibility with anyone else. The gospel has not taken like hold of your life. It has not captivated your heart and changed you. Not just changed you in a salvific sense, like you placed your faith in Jesus and you've been changed from an eternity destined to be apart from him to an eternity with him. No, you're being changed by the working of the Spirit of the Lord in your heart. You're being changed into the image of Jesus. That lends credibility to the third thing. Now you can teach it. You've got to be willing to teach it. Ezra has set his heart to study and do and teach the Word. The first step in discipleship is establishing a pattern of personal faithfulness. This should sound a lot like Daniel. Ezra has set his heart to do these three things. He has conviction about it. It doesn't come from a place of duty. It comes from a place of desire. What you'll see as you read the back half of the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6 talk all about the rebuilding of the temple, and then 7 through 10 are the story of Ezra arriving in Jerusalem. And what you're going to see is that Ezra understands the character of the Lord because he understands the word of the Lord. He wants to understand that character. He wants to understand the goodness of God, the person of God, the commands of God for himself, but he also wants others to understand it around him. He wants that for all of Israel. And much like Daniel was leaving Jerusalem, headed to Babylon, and he had this conviction about the way he was going to live no matter where he went, Ezra leaves Babylon and heads back to Jerusalem and has the same conviction. I'm going to study and do and teach the word of the Lord. It doesn't matter where you put me. That's step one in the discipleship process. Personal faithfulness. Which leads me to a few questions. Are you studying the word of God? Not just for the rules. The issue isn't just knowing the do's and don'ts of the Bible. The issue isn't just understanding the commands. In fact, the more you study the word of the Lord, the more you're going to come to see that you cannot possibly live out all the do's and don'ts of the commands of the Bible. One person has done that in all of history. His name was Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord, he did it faithfully because it means that you don't have to. It means the fact that you can't has been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ given on your behalf. If you've placed your faith in Him, then your inability to perfectly uphold the Lord's law, your inability to live sinlessly has been forgiven by Jesus Christ. The issue isn't just knowing all the do's and don'ts, knowing all the commands of the Bible. The issue is knowing the commander. That you would have deep, personal, intimate knowledge of who the Lord is and what He's done on your behalf. Are you studying the Word of God? Are you personally faithful in that sort of way? Are you yielding yourself to the work of the Spirit to move you to a place of obedience? Are you submitting in areas of your life where maybe there's a a place of sin or a place of temptation? Are you submitting those to the Lord and allowing the Spirit to move you to obedience? 
Are you doing the word of God? And not just the places where maybe we typically think about obedience in terms of negative things, like I need to stop doing fill in the blank. I need to quit doing fill in the blank. Are you allowing the Lord to move you into places of positive obedience? Scripture calls me to do blank, but I don't do it. Are you allowing the Spirit to move in you in that sort of obedience? Sinfulness, quote-unquote, sinful behavior isn't always just doing something God told you not to do. We can sin by not doing the things the Lord told us to do. Obedience works both of those directions. Are you submitting yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit to move you to obedience in those places so you can be personally faithful? Are you looking to teach the truths of Scripture to someone else? A heavy dose of personal faithfulness. That's step one in the discipleship process. Look with me really quickly at some of the headings in Ezra 8, 9, and 10. There's a genealogy of all the people who returned with Ezra. When you get to that place and you're reading this week, hit play on a Bible app and let him read those names to you. Ezra sends for a group of Levites to come with him. Some other priests, some other people who are interested and committed to the law. And then in chapter 9, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem and he sees that the people that are there have already returned to the sins that got them sent into exile. Most notably, they're marrying people that aren't Israelite. They're intermarrying with Canaanite people and they begin to worship their gods. And Ezra arrives and chapter 9 is this beautiful, repentant prayer. Ezra has on his own. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. People who wept bitterly. As he's confessing and praying and repenting, people come around and they're listening to what he is saying. This is Ezra's first act in Jerusalem. He teaches about repentance. He teaches about the command of the Lord to not marry people from the land of Canaan. And then nothing happens for a really long time. Flip over to Ezra, or Nehemiah chapter 8 if you marked that. Years worth of time pass while the people rebuild the walls. That's what happens in Nehemiah 1 through 7. In chapter 8, the walls have been completed. Nehemiah has done that. And this is what we're told. Verses 1 through 4. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh, on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of all the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that he had made for the purpose. They finish the walls. Kind of the rebuilding of Jerusalem seems like it's coming to an end. There's a joyful, celebratory note. And what do they do? They say, hey, where's the Ezra guy? Bring him back out. And have him bring the book of the law with him. And so Ezra comes before them. He stands on this platform that they've built. And he reads from the word of the Lord from early morning until midday. And all the people stand and listen. We haven't seen anything from Ezra over a number of years. You don't have to flip back 
But I want to show you the two things that Ezra teaches. This is what discipleship entails. Ezra teaches the people of Israel in Jerusalem two very critical things. He teaches about the character of God. In Ezra chapter 9, this is a part of his prayer of repentance and confession. Yet God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended us his steadfast love, his hesed love, his covenant love. God's been faithful. Another point, he says, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just before you. Our behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Discipleship requires teaching about the character of God. Ezra arrives, and that's what he begins to do. He's teaching about repentance and confession, but more than that, he's teaching about the character of a loving, forgiving, merciful, holy, just God. But he does not shy away from the fact that there's sin happening. The second thing he teaches about are the commands of God. That's what the whole Ezra chapter 9 and 10 is all about. The Israelites need to be obedient. He's begging them to be obedient. Incidentally, those are the two things that the Great Commission encourages believers to do. Behold, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Baptizing. Teach them about the character of God. Teach them that he's loving and forgiving and merciful, but he's also holy and just and wrathful towards sin. Teach them the character of God, but also teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Teach them the commandments. What does it look like to disciple someone? It's really not that difficult. Teach people the character of God and teach them the commands of God. Let's take a flyover of the rest of the book of Nehemiah. Watch what happens. The next section of my uh, Bible in chapter 8 of Nehemiah says, This day is holy. It begins in Ezra 8, chapter 9. What happens is that the people hearing the word of the Lord begin weeping. Some of them are joyful, but for the most part they're, they're weeping over, it is, uh, over what it is that they've heard. And then there's this feast that's celebrated, the Feast of Booths. The people are moved to worship. The Bible doesn't say anything about singing because that's not necessarily what worship is. They're moved to worship in that they are in awe of the Lord. They're weeping at His Word. They're seeing Him for who He is. They're in awe of it. And then they celebrate this feast that was given to them to commemorate who God is. They're moved to a place of worship. And then in chapter 9, it says the people of Israel confess their sin. Note, they do that on their own this time. Ezra doesn't have to be the one that does it for them. And then in chapter 10, they make a covenant with the Lord that they're going to be obedient. I want to just kind of walk through what I think, without having to, to overreach, happened here in Israel between Ezra's first kind of public moment in Ezra chapter 9 and his second public moment at the back of the book of Nehemiah. Look at Ezra chapter 8. There are 13 people with him on this platform. That's in verse 4. I would attempt to say their names, but I wouldn't get any of them right. That's in verse 4. There are 13 people standing with him. And then as he goes and begins to read 
the book of the law of Moses is what we're the way they call as what they're calling it. Uh, verse seven. Also, thirteen more names. Verse seven starts with Jeshua and Benai. There are thirteen names there, and then verse eight says they read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Note who's not doing it, Ezra. Why? It's been years at this point. Ezra brought back this group of Levites with him, and he has equipped them to be able to go amongst all of these people and do this for themselves. They can take the word of the Lord and explain it to people so that everyone understands it clearly. And obviously the people must have understood because they're weeping, they're celebrating this feast, they're moving to a place of repentance on their own. And when you read Nehemiah 8 two, or Nehemiah 9 two weeks from now, the people basically give this beautiful summary of the entirety of Scripture up to this point. It's amazing. Why? Because the Levites came out, 13 of them, and explained it to them clearly. What is... Discipleship create. Ezra spent years working with these Levites that came with him so that they could understand the law, so that they could explain it clearly. Discipleship creates further discipleship. And then when the people say, hey, bring the book, Ezra says, I'll bring the book and these 13 people that can explain it to you. And they do it perfectly. And the rest of the book of Nehemiah is an amazing picture of that. Discipleship leads to further discipleship. Someone else can turn around and teach. Discipleship leads to worship. That's what happens in Nehemiah 8, verses 9 through 18. It leads to a deeper knowledge of God. In Nehemiah chapter 9, you'll see a perfect picture of that. And then finally, discipleship leads to obedience. They make this covenant that they're going to be faithful and to follow what Scripture says. Do you remember this quote from a couple weeks ago? It was uh, the week that we talked about the exile. It's actually... Uh, from a man named Landon Dowden when he was commenting on the book of Ezekiel. He says, We need not go past the gospel, but deeper into it. The lost world needs to see the gospel advancing in us and through us and to see that it still amazes us. The lost world needs to see the gospel advancing in you, personal faithfulness, through you, discipleship, and to see that it still amazes you. That last chunk there should be the motivation for all of your discipleship efforts. That you have a continued awe in the gospel. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem and he had this continued awe that God had been steadfast in his love. That he was just. That he was merciful. That he was gracious. When you look at the lost world around you and you see the brokenness, I hope you're still reminded of the fact that God is loving. He's committed to his covenant. He's just. He's merciful, he's gracious, that that has happened in your life and that it's held out to the broken people that are around you. The process of discipleship says, I'm so captivated by that, I can't help but share it with others. The cross before you at all times, no matter how many times you've looked to it, you want nothing more than to live in its shadow that the gospel still amazes you. Maybe what you need this morning is not a greater commitment to your own personal faithfulness or a better understanding of what discipleship is. Maybe what you need this morning is a reminder of the gospel. Maybe what you need, to, maybe what you need is to find yourself continually amazed at the power of the word yet. That humanity is so sinful and broken, we can probably 
hardly wrap our minds around just how flawed we are internally. And yet God is so loving and gracious and merciful that he willingly gave his only son in order to pay the price for that sin. There's a pastor across town. His name is Nathan Rose. He's the pastor at Liberty Baptist Church. And a couple of weeks ago, he tweeted something that has stuck with me ever since. He said this, Forgetting the gospel doesn't mean you can't remember the facts. It's the tendency to no longer be captivated by its truth. Maybe you need to be captivated. Maybe you need to be amazed afresh this morning. Maybe you need to make a commitment to personal faithfulness and studying and doing the Word. Maybe you're step one. I need to ground myself in personal faithfulness. Or maybe you need to open up your life to the willingness to teach others who can teach others who can teach others. Maybe you need to make a commitment to investing yourself in the process of discipleship. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Are they in here? Oh, there's Ryan. Whew. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And as they do, I want to revisit the opening illustration I told. Except for I want to drill it down and make it a little bit more personal. I don't think anybody in here is the commander of a nuclear submarine. I could be wrong. Catch me afterward if I am. What David Marquette did was he looked around at his current situation. He said, you know what? I need to do the best job I can possibly do to make this place run as smoothly and efficiently and as well as possible. He didn't necessarily think that he was going to send nine commanders out to other submarines who were going to take a similar model out with them. He was just faithful to the process in front of him. You might look around and say to yourself, Tim, I hear you talking about discipleship, but I don't have any idea where to start. And let me tell you where to start. In your submarine, your house, your home, the people that live there with you. You've got children, there's the place to start. A spouse, brothers and sisters, extended family members who need to hear the gospel. Begin there. And be as faithful as possible to the process of discipleship there, to teaching those individuals the character and the commandments of the Lord. What it looks like to be in awe of a God who would give of himself to save us and what it looks like to live a faithful and obedient life in response to that. And then get on your knees in prayer and pray that it would lead them to a deeper understanding of who God is. Pray that it would lead them to obedience. Pray that it would lead them to worship. Pray that it would lead to extended discipleship, that then from that there would be ripple effects outward. Our desire as a church is not that the person that stands up here or the leader of whatever ministry you might take part in here in this church or the person that you fire off angry emails to when you're not happy about something, our desire is not that they would do the discipleship. Our desire is to give our congregation the tools to turn and do that discipleship with the people around you. That's a huge driver behind this Bible initiative. Step one, study the Word. Do the Word. Be willing to teach the Word. And we said, you know, what's the best thing we can do to help our congregation build devoted followers of Jesus Christ? Give them tools to do the building. Let's read the Bible together, beginning to end. If you've been reading along with us since January uh, 1st, A, congratulations, that's a long time. Even if you've missed some days in there, if you're still tracking with us, great job. But also realize this, you've got a great understanding of everything from Genesis to Daniel right now. You could invest the truth of God's character and the truth of his commands 
into someone who doesn't have that understanding. And then you could pray that that discipleship effort leads them to worship, that it leads them to an understanding of God, that it leads them to obedience, that it leads them to maybe faith in the gospel for the first time or maybe a life that's lived more obediently in response to it. And you can pray that it would lead to further discipleship efforts into the future. I stand here, right, most Sunday mornings, and we walk through Scripture together, and we worship together, and we encourage one another, and we spur each other on, and I have no idea where the gospel might go out of this place, but I pray every single day that there are ripple effects far outside the walls of this building. You start in your submarine and pray that there would be ripple effects far outside the threshold of your home and allow God to be the one who's faithful to that sort of work. And then someday when somebody comes to you and they've got something going on in their life, whether they're celebrating or they're mourning or whatever the case might be, and they say, hey, bring the book. And you say, I've got it right here. And I know it, and I'm ready to teach it. My prayer is that we would be a church who engages in that sort of discipleship process. Let's stand up and sing together. I'm going to pray over us really briefly, and then we'll close our service and worship together.